Welcome to Trending in Education. Mike Palmer here. Excited today to be joined by Dr. David Lenahan, who is the president and CEO of Tiber Health. He's been doing really interesting work around medical education and trying to address some of the pipeline issues and some of the, the real challenges we're facing both in the U.S. And, and also globally. Really excited to dig into all that down the road. Before any, we do any of that, I want to welcome David to the show. Welcome to Trending in Education. Hi, Mike. Thanks a lot for having me on. I'm really excited to talk about this. It's really an important global topic that everyone should be interested in. Yeah, absolutely. And I was mentioning to you, and it's something I've noticed recently, I, I have covered medical education less often than I should over the five plus years, 450 plus episodes we've done of trending in education. And it's something that I, I think as a macro trend, it's almost whatever beyond a trend is. Healthcare is so much a big part of our lives. And I think even more so in light of the pandemic. Last yeah. couple of years, I think folks are very much aware of this. Uh, and then also the, how that's impacting our healthcare providers and how they're finding education and how they're finding their pathways to the right career paths for them. It's a crazy time. We always begin by asking our guests for their origin stories. Can you catch us up on how you got to this point in your professional life? I, I had started a healthcare company in Europe and uh, my wife and I lived over there. I, we lived in Scotland for a long time. I, I went to school at Edinburgh, Cambridge, did my PhDs there and uh, moved back to the United States, got a, a good job at WashU in the spinal cord injury department and doing my thing there. And then opportunity came up for a, a position at a new medical school opening up in Harlem, New York. And I applied, I got the job as a professor of, of neurosurgery and uh, neuroanatomy. And I commuted actually every day from St. Louis to New York. I caught the morning flight, came back. That was a bit hard. Yeah. But it was a great opportunity. To, and here's the thing when you go to a startup, you can move up the chain fairly quickly. And my experience in the UK and running businesses over there helped me move up the chain. And within a couple of years, Toro had made me dean of the school. And one of the things that was interesting is that our goal, our mission was to get more underrepresented minorities into the healthcare workforce. We weren't really doing a good job. We were averaging national average, which is two or 3%, but we really didn't do a good job. And so we made some changes and we got that number up to about 40%, which is the highest in the U.S. outside of HBUs or historically Hispanic institutions. And we had some of the best ward passage rates. And that got the attention of some capital people. And they asked me if I would come and, and lead a team. And so I left and joined University Ventures, Mr. Daniel Piaco, who's my partner. And we became the first group ever to buy a U.S. medical school. So we bought this school down in Puerto Rico, which is a, a very good school. And by the way, Puerto Rico is part of the United States. Our graduates are like Kansas, Nebraska, Iowa yep. graduates. They doctors as everybody else. They're not offshore or some other place. And we started to turn this thing around and it needed to turn around. And we implemented the stuff that I had created at Toro, brought in new analytics, really have increased the quality. And now we're investing significant sums of money in infrastructure and development. We've got permission now to build a new campus in St. Louis, and we hope to become the third largest medical school in the United States here in the next five or six years with the two campuses. And the thing that we do, which is very different, which is in a short sense, is we take students from lower socioeconomic backgrounds, students that all the other medical schools don't take, and we get them through the medical education system, that health education system. At 
if not a higher, at least the average board passage rate of all the other schools. So we're taking students no one else looks at using our techniques, our analytics, our delivery method in education and are getting the students out. And here's why this is important. We'll get into this, I bet, is if we truly want to solve the healthcare problems in the United States, we need to start selecting students from where those problems are in rural America and urban core America, where we are short doctors. In my neighborhood, we have enough doctors. I, I, if I have to go see the physician, I can go. But if you're living in rural Kansas or you're in the inner city of Cleveland, this can be hard. And so we need to take students from those areas. And that's really what we concentrate on. How do we get students from lower socioeconomic areas that have similar life experiences of the patients in those areas to go back and practice in those areas? And to us, that is how we solve the healthcare problems that we all talk about and we read about in the news. That's the direct and best way, I think, to solve this problem. Yeah. And, and then the problem... Can you lay out for us a little more detail around what's going on in the healthcare profession? Let me give you a great example, yeah. Mike. The COVID problem that we're all dealing with right now. And what we're seeing is that a lot of the minority communities in the inner city have low vaccination rates. We're seeing in the rural parts of America, low vaccination rates. It's not that the vaccines aren't available. They're abundantly available to anyone who wants to know. But for some reason, these populations, which are very often lower socioeconomic populations, aren't getting vaccinated. And the reason is, in my opinion, is that they don't have healthcare workers. There is no trust being developed over a long period of time between that doctor and patient relationship. And what we're seeing in Puerto Rico, and I'm going to give a reason for this hypothesis, in Puerto Rico, we had a hurricane five years ago, and the school has been out in the community ever since dealing with the aftermath. Now, when this pandemic hit, we went out and said, you guys need to get vaccinated. Everyone got vaccinated because they trusted us. We were already out there in that community. And that's why Puerto Rico has the highest vaccination rate, or one of the reasons why Puerto Rico has the highest vaccination rate in the U.S. We need to start doing that in rural America. We need to start doing that in urban core Rust Belt America. And the only way I see doing that is to select students from those areas and get them into the healthcare system. And then there's different students in your program but then your program itself is a little bit different than other medical. Yeah. Well, it's different in the way we deliver it. It's different in the way we assess students, but the way we select the students is very different. But again, give an example of myself, my two boys, uh, I do okay in life. My two boys went to a private school and they had dad who's a doctor, help them go do their stuff. Now they go to university and they take chemistry, biology, and calculus. My kids have already taken these courses, so they get A's in these courses. That's a second attempt. But that student who went to rural America or urban core America, this might be the first time they're seeing these courses. They're learning a new type of life because they haven't been in that college type of environment and they get three C's. If you get three C's your freshman year, the game is up. No medical school will ever look at you again. And this is a very common place with students that come from poor communities. And we need to find a way to, to get them up. And it's not that my kids are smarter. It's just my boys are better prepared. Right. And so we need to find a way to go identify talent. And so the big difference between us is how do we go identify that talent? We don't really use the MCATs. We don't look at their freshman and sophomore GPA because we find that those numbers tend to really disenfranchise these students. Mm. So what we created was this master's program. 
And what it says is, we understand you didn't get into any medical school and you're a high risk type of student. Yeah. We're going to try you out. And what the master's program did for us is it's the very first year of medical school. So what we say is that medical school isn't hard. It's just a lot of information thrown at you in a short period of time. What we do is we, we measure how well that student can triage that information and we compare them to our medical school. So it's taken me about 10 years to create these math formulas, but we developed these series of math formulas that predict how students will do on the boards. Yeah. So we take these master students, run them through, compare them to medical school students. And if it looks like they're going to do well on the boards, we bring them into our medical school. That's how we've been able to really drive up our board passage rates. That's how we've been able to select students that no other medical school has taken. Because if they would have got selected by another medical school, they would have gone. You, you would go to it. You wouldn't go into this master's program. And what it does is it really helps us change the graphics or the demographics of our students. And, and if you look at it, our average student rental income is $40,000 a year. The average U.S. medical student parental income is $270,000 a year. That's a huge difference from preparation to access to resources. Our students don't get them. And here's the thing. We take students, lower GPA, a lower MCAT score, but we get them through at the same rate. We get them through at the same board passer. And again, these are the students that are going to go into those areas and practice where we need the healthcare workers. You still need the students from the Yales and the Stanfords. You need the research scientists and the surgeons, but you also need the pediatricians, the emergency room doctors, the family practice, the psychiatrist. So that's really the bubble we're trying to create because we believe that is the most immediate way to solve this problem. And there's the, the compounding benefit of they're most likely to then go back into their own communities to provide better care because they actually are coming out of that. In healthcare, we don't like to talk about money. Every, everything's driven by money, but we don't like to say, oh, it's money related. Yeah. The reality is it is money related. If you take students who have a similar life experiences and the patients they're likely to treat, the patient has a higher satisfaction rate. We have a reduced recidivism rate, how often the patient comes back. So they're not coming back as much. You have better patient compliance, so better outcomes. And when you get those four elements into that system, the hospital system gets a better reimbursement rate. And by getting a better reimbursement rate, that means they now have more money to increase wages, to invest in capital expenditures, to build out extra resources. This is how we stop or, or stymie that hospital foreclosure thing that's happening in rural America. We got to get them more money. Well, you get them more money by getting them doctors who are similar to the patients they're likely to treat. And this is also true, and especially in the Rust Belt of America, in the bourbon core. You get that. And I'm going to jump here because I think there's a good point. With the other thing that, that happens is we saw this in Harlem. There were no really doctors in that 10027 zip code. And when we built the medical school there, what happens? You get doctors coming in from all over to teach. And then at the end of the day, the physician has to decide, well, do I drive home at rush hour or do I just go downstairs into the clinic and practice? And over time, what happened is in that community, you started having some of the best cardiothoracic doctors, some of the best endocrinologists for diabetes and things like that. And now all of a sudden, a community that had nothing has a bunch of doctors that are, are, are some of the best in the world. That's what happens when you build these medical schools and you train these students from these areas and you place them in these communities. Yeah. 
Yeah, it makes sense. It, it's it's interesting to me as someone who's in Brooklyn, so I understand the the New York Puerto Rico connection <laughs> is real, and you've proven a model now in those two locations. This sounds like a model that could be replicated in other communities to to scale it, and I imagine. You're still focused on what you're delivering now, but it sounds like this is the type of model that, you know, we want to get word out there. Is it already happening in other places? What's going on in terms of opening up these access pipelines and identifying the the students who otherwise might have missed an opportunity they were set up to succeed at? You're starting to see this happen a little bit more. The Loma Linda School out in LA, the Dell School. So you're starting to see this happen. But in my opinion, they're, they're not necessarily doing it right because what's happening is in medical school, you get so many applicants, you get thousands and thousands of applicants for a real small number of slots. Sometimes medical school deans are lazy. And I mean that in a nice way, but you get all these applicants, you put everyone in an Excel sheet, you draw a line, you say, we're going to interview these students. We need to build better pipelines. And I, I wrote a paper once in the St. Louis Cardinals, I'll switch my baseball cap here and put the Cardinals hat on. And the St. Louis Cardinals, I wrote a paper on the farm system. So the Cardinals developed a farm system, realizing in the 1920s that they needed to create a pipeline of players. Now, no one could ever think of baseball without the AAA system or the farm system. We need to do that for medicine. We need to do that for healthcare. You need to start looking at pipelines, long-term pipelines to select students to move them in, especially in these highly competitive type of education processes. And and get that student prepared. Like the big leagues, being a doctor, being a nurse practitioner, being that that's the big leagues. You're taking care of America's most vulnerable, the world's most vulnerable. So what we are doing is we are running these master's programs across the United States as uh, partnering with universities. So these students often coming from, again, lower socioeconomic background, have another chance, a second chance to get into the medical big leagues. Yeah. And then the second thing we're doing is we're getting ready to expand this globally because this is just not an American problem. This is a problem from China all the way to Europe. Yeah. And, and it's, a, it's a new way of looking at how do you select him? Yeah. And uh, credit to you for our listeners. Dave did just switch from a Cubs hat to Cardinals hat in the midst of this interview through the, the magic of audio. I have to say that out loud, but good right. about you that you were ready to make that transition. Similarly, there are a lot of transitions happening around who's delivering healthcare, how it's being delivered, and also how medical education is being delivered. Any broad impressions or, or thoughts around how things are, things are very much shifting, but as someone who's in the delivering against a vision, you're experiencing all these changes over the past couple of years. What trends are popping? What are you noticing in the world of medical education and and just healthcare more broadly? Well, one thing that really gives me concern is the number of rural hospitals that are closing. And if you look at about 20 years ago, it started in Georgia and you're seeing a swap of rural hospital closings from Georgia, Tennessee, Kentucky, Missouri, Alabama. And it's, it, it, it really, if you can follow that wave, there's been a few papers about that. And, and the reason is the rural system gets paid less money for the same service as a hospital in LIJ or, or Long Island, my case, or in St. Louis, if it's in rural Missouri. And we really need to find a way to equate 
those services. Because if I do a COVID test in rural Missouri, and a COVID is not the best example because it's a federal funded thing. But if I do a test in rural Missouri, I might get $10 where the hospital in St. Louis would get $12. That $2, that's 20%. That's your capital expenditure budget. That's how you paid your, your driveways. That's how you get new MRIs. You get roofs. That's how you increase your wages so you can be competitive and labor talent. And one of the things we see in medical schools, and it's going to relate to this, is that if you build a medical school too remotely, and there's one that's in Alabama, it's tough to get talent. It's tough to get workforce without having to pay over the top on your FTE, your labor costs. Yeah. And hospitals are getting caught in this same thing. So we really need, if we want to stop this from happening, and, and by the way, there are communities in Iowa, Nebraska, Missouri, Kansas, where the nearest doctor might be 200 miles away, the nearest health system. That's just crazy to think about. And so we need to figure out a way to, to get their pay equated. And then if we look at urban core, the Rust Belt urban core, a lot of these facilities don't exist. If we look in St. Louis and North St. Louis, there really isn't a hospital system within five or six miles, a lot of these communities. Now you might think if you're living in Brooklyn or, or somewhere, you might think, oh, five miles, what's the big deal? But if, if you only earn 30,000 a year and you got to concentrate on public transport, and your nearest doctor is five miles away, they might as well be in New Mexico. Yeah. You know, and, and so we need to start building and making sure that our resources are where our communities require them. And, and we're not doing a very good job right now. And then the last part, which I think is starting to now gain some traction in the Congress is we need to create more training sites, more residency slots and how we train our physicians. And we just increased it. The last appropriations bill, we just added a new thousand residency slots across the United States. 200 per year for the, for the next five years, which is a great first stop. But we need to do more on that. And it's, this isn't a huge cost to the U.S. government because we're providing training facilities. And, and one of the things I talk about is that as we create these residency slots, we need to ensure that the residents don't go to the LIJs or the Kaisers or the BJCs in St. Louis. It's not that they don't need them, but they have enough. We need to make sure that these residency lots are deployed in Oklahoma and the Indian tribes. Mm -hmm. We need to make sure they're in rural Nebraska. We need to make sure they're in urban core St. Louis. We need to put these residencies there so that we start training our doctors in areas where we actually need more doctors. Yeah. I know you say yes, and we both agree, yeah, that makes logical sense, but that's not what we do. Right. <laughs> and so that we need to have a rethink on how we go about uh, solving this problem. Yeah, absolutely. That's amazing stuff. And that's a perspective we don't typically get on this podcast. So, so I definitely appreciate the medical perspective and also understanding how to like, how to manage hospitals and how to understand the bottom line and understand really the full range of the complexity that's really out there in the delivery. One aspect that we do tend to geek out on a bit on this show is the actual instructional design and the way the, the content is delivered. I'd be curious around your experience being responsible for that side of things as well through a very transitional period. What was it like being in the field around medical education? Now the Cubs had us coming back on. This is this. I, I, I put the thinking cap on. Now we're getting into the technical stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, any, any thoughts? Yeah, this, that, this is my favorite thing to talk about. All right. And so I'm going to go a little bit in the weeds. And if it goes too far, you pull me back. For sure. I said, hey, Dave, I'm not sure we're going there. But this is back when I was teaching. And one of the things that's interesting is it's tough to get medical students to go to class. 
These are A personality kids. They're used to studying on their own. They're smart, they're aggressive. And not everyone goes to class. I was lucky enough, everyone came to my class. So the class before me was pharmacology. There wouldn't be so many. Everyone come into my class, the class after me, physio, there wouldn't be so many. And so one day I gave this lecture and it was on the blood supply to the brain. And so the, the brain has this kind of vascular structure uh, where the blood goes and you got three vessels, the front, middle, and back that supply the blood to the brain. And I said, I, I talked for two hours on this, went through everything. And at the end I go, all right, here's a patient that's just come into the emergency room. There's set symptoms. What vessel got damaged? What, what vessel is, is this problem? And I had a student response system, the eye clickers, yeah. I click, they click on them. And so I had A, the front, B, the middle, C, the back. And of course, when I made up an answer, so it was just nonsense. And the answers I got were about 25% ABCD, which means these students had no bloody idea what the correct answer was. And I got mad in the class. I'm like, guys, and I call students dudes. So I go dudes when I get mad, dudes. All of you are going to see this patient next year when you do your emergency room clinic. And if you don't get this right, people's lives are in jeopardy. And it's an easy question, by the way. And, and so I go, all right, you got three minutes to figure out what the answer is, and it's going to count for 5% of your grade. Now, whenever you talk about points, medical students' ears pop up, and all of a sudden, it's really quite important. So they go to solve it, and, and everyone gets it right, because it's 80% of all strokes happen in the middle. And so even if you don't know, you should have guessed that. And they get it right. I leave class. You know, you have your, this moment thinking, there's only two explanations for this. One, maybe all these students are too stupid to understand a really smart guy like me. I mean, I went to Edinburgh and Cambridge. I got PhDs. I'm yeah. pretty good. I'm a genius. People say that. Maybe that's the answer, but maybe not. And here's really where the tough thing happens for academics. What if I'm no good? Which is really the answer. What if I'm, I'm entertaining, the students like come into my class, I'm fun, I, I'm funny, I, I communicate, but I wasn't teaching them anything. I wasn't doing what they were paying me to do. And that was, that's a very tough position to get in. And from that moment on, what I did was I tape recorded, at that moment, I tape recorded my lecture and I put it up on Moodle, we were using Moodle at the time, and I go listen to my lecture. And then when you come to class, we're going to work through clinical problems. We're no more listening to me talk. We're just going to try it with the props. Students loved it. They thought this is exactly, it was prepared for the boards. They could listen to my lecture whenever they had, they wanted to do it. They didn't have to listen to me. And I loved it a lot more because if everyone got the question right, I, I could move on and then spend time talking about the things the students had trouble with. So I, I built this thing where I, we, now what we do is we have all our videos online. The students watch the lectures before they come to class. And then in class, we work through clinical problems and we get the students to work in teams to solve these problems. And we're able to work through lots of problems. Now, as I created this, one of the things that happened was we were using this program with iClicker called ExamSoft and we started collecting a bunch of data and we were just collecting it. I wasn't sure what we were going to do with it. And one of my friends, he's now at Duke or yeah, Duke, he runs their financial security things. He looked at it, he goes, Dave, that looks like economic data. And that's when it clicked. And I'm going to go into the weeds here a little bit, but students behave like large scale data sets. They behave like equity markets. And so what we did was every time we ask a student a question, I calculate how much money it's worth, virtual money. The more difficult the question, the more money, the more relevant to the boards, the more money, the more relevant to patient care, the more money. And so we have all these things that go in to do this. 
And if the student gets the question right, I add the money to their virtual bank account. They get it wrong, I take it away. And we track them over time. Mm. And what happened was we get this graphic, looks like a stock market. Yeah. You know, hopefully like a stock market, like you're, it goes up. And what we were able to do is build some regression lines down and build very accurate predictive models. Mm. And that's what everything changed. Because once we started being able to predict what their boards were going to be early on in their curriculum, I was able to start changing the curriculum. I was able to step in early when the students were having trouble. And again, this is going to sound very logical, but A students get A's, B students get B's, C students get C's. But when that A student drops to a B student, something's going on in their life. And what I would do is I'd say, I'd call them into my office and I'd say, hey, Mike, what's going on? You're an A student, now you're a B student. Something looks like you're not doing anything. And nine times out of 10, the student would say, the last set of exams were really hard. I, I just had to take a break. It's a great answer. I write it in their file and they go back up. But it's the one time out of 10, and these are real things that I've had to take care of. I'm being abused by my husband. My kid is sick. My mom is ill. Something's about to get in the way of them becoming a doctor, something they've worked their entire life. And because of their personalities, their A personalities, they think they can work through it. But this problem's about to be too big. If I know about it at a time, if they fail the course, it's too late. I got to let them go. And so by doing this, I was able to reduce our dropout rate over the course of four years from about 8% to 2%. One, that yielded about $2 million in free cash flow for the business. This was at Toro. But two, we're able to get more doctors through the systems out into the community and practice and have them meet and, and finish their dream just for calling them in and asking a question. When you bring these analytic models into education, just like we did for baseball, that's what it allows you to do. It allows you to step in and make changes on the fly so you have a better outcome. And that's something that the medical schools, in my opinion, right now, do not do a very good job of. We wait to some end formative exam before we do anything. We need to be doing this literally day to day. Those are the things we brought in. It allowed us to change our admissions metrics, and that's how we were able to get more more underrepresented minorities in and allowed us to improve our outcomes. That's why we're able to, to get some of the results that we've been able to have. Yeah. And it's rather exciting, but, it but the tough thing is it takes a long time. The one thing that a lot of people forget is that medical education doesn't move quickly. We got to just take these first steps. And what we're trying to do is take those first steps so that we can help show other people what to do. Yeah. And you mentioned dealing with a hurricane in Puerto Rico. Also, we've all been dealing with the pandemic over the last couple of years. Any perspective on, I like to talk about VUCA sometimes, you know, volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. The world is pretty crazy. Maybe crazy is the new normal. It sounds like you've had to manage through some chaotic environments at times and think about medical education through that whole period. Any thoughts? Yeah, a lot of thoughts on that. So, we took over in 2000, late 14, 15, and in 17, we get hit with this hurricane. And when I mean hit with a hurricane, we were devastated. And we didn't see FEMA for six weeks. There was nobody on the South Island. It was like the walking dead to some degree. Not that it was like that, but we were getting AM radio signals from the Dominican Republic because there was no communication where water was, where shelter was. And so one of the things we did really well is that we had taken some money out of the bank before the hurricane hit in cash and a bag. 
And we gave every employee $20 that came to work mm. after the hurricane. Now, remember, the banking system was stuck for six months. There was no money moving in. And so by us giving $20 to every employee, this is my CFO, Carlo Rojas, is uh, genius. He goes, if nothing happens, we'll put the money back in. But if something happens, we have cash on hand. And because we had cash on hand and we were giving everybody $20 a day, everyone came to work. When diesel had to be deployed, we got diesel. And so we were the first school up and running because of that. And we had to make tough calls. Well, were we going to move the school to St. Louis or the mainland? If we did, it would have crushed the economy, yeah. um, crushed the healthcare. We were the main providers of healthcare to the island. And this is going to sound silly. When the mayor walks into the library where everyone's sleeping and goes, is there any doctor with repelling experience? You know, crap has hit the fan. Something bad has happened because we had to repel down into the communities. The other thing is that when you go to the doctor and then you get a prescription, you go to the pharmacy, the pharmacy validates the prescription with the DEA. If you don't have any communications, there's no way to validate. So I had to write a letter to the pharmacies and say, hey, look, I'll take the response. I don't even know I had legal response authority to do this, but I'm like, just go ahead and do it. We have to, we brought doctors down to validate. We had to take insulin and put it in a, normally you keep insulin in its own refrigerator. You don't put it in with other things. I'm like, if you only got one generator and one fridge, you got to make this accommodation. Yeah. And what I realized is no one wanted to make a decision. And, and what we need to do is, and this is what we've been very good at in our medical school is not only teaching them medicine, but also teaching them how to go out into the community and help the community make a decision. Mm-hmm. And, and that's where that, you know, diversification of the workforce happens. And then what, which you might not know of is we got hit with Zika. If you remember the Zika, that was a Puerto Rican thing. We had to deal with that. And then we got hit with an earthquake. And then we had COVID. But because when COVID hit, we had already digitized our curriculum. We are already teaching like we're discussing right now via Zoom and these these things. We were already well ahead of the game and we didn't lose any ground. And because of all this now, quote unquote, I'm a disaster recovery expert. Yes. (laughs) I remember during the hurricane, I called my partner, Daniel Pianco from UV. I'm like, Daniel, I am not equipped to do this. I don't know what the heck I'm doing. Yeah. And I remember he gave me some really good advice that I, I tell people, because Dave, just do your best. Make a decision. You can change it later. Make a decision. Do your best. It was just one of the best advice my, my board chairman could have given me. Because I knew I, I had his back or he had my back. And we were able to make the decisions to 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 do this. And because of that, we're back online. We're able to deliver. The community now has got that element of trust. And that, I believe, fully translated when the vaccines came out. Right. Because everyone trusted us or they at least wanted to listen to what we had to say. And our dean of research, Dr. Kinnear Thompson, when she was out, really took that by the bull and, and was able to get everyone vaccinated. I think all that is one package. You just can't say, oh, we would have done that without these other things. These other things have helped us evolve into the type of school we are today. Yeah, it's amazing stuff. You you get excited when you got technical before. What about emerging technology? I like to talk about virtual reality, artificial intelligence, emerging trends. How do you think that's going to influence healthcare? How's it going to influence medical education? Any takes on that area? I, I would say that I wish I was an expert in this. So. When I developed the modeling system, I developed this into seven degree polynomial. So it's X to the one plus Y to the seconds. So it's this, it's a math formula that I can yeah. get around. Now I got a whole team of engineers that do artificial intelligence and machine learning. 
And I just nod my head when they talk to me. I'm like, yeah, yeah, that all sounds great. But we've really been able to improve our accuracy. So with the polynomials, we got a R of about 0.72. To put in perspective, the MCAT has a, a correlated value of about 0.4. Right. We're able to increase that to 0.72. And now with machine learning and neural nets, we're at 0.8. So I wish I could go into depth on what they do. Wow. Yeah. But it's really accurate. And, and, and I think that's what you're going to start seeing in our differential diagnoses in the hospitals and when we treat patients. We're going to be a lot more accurate to learn using some of this artificial intelligence and machine learning and how we go about deploying our, what we think is the problem. Right. There's lots of things out there that are working on this. And I see the next generation of doctors not only having to use their clinical experience, but they're going to also have to use their IT experience. So the skill sets of our physicians are evolved. Yeah. And I think for the best, by the yeah. way, I need to balance that clinical skill with what your expectations are. And then on the, I don't know if this is the proper word, the metaverse or how yeah. do we go about doing this stuff? I, I think you're going to start seeing that a lot more in Sims and then also a lot more with having support. So you'll be able to have a doctor or a, like a, we use a battlefield example, somebody, a patient on a battlefield and you don't, maybe don't have a surgeon there to do something. So you could have it, a trained tech doing it. Yeah. With a person with the, the, the VR glasses on telling the individual how to go about treat that patient. Now that's not the ideal situation, but these are in times of emergency. Right. And so the, the, this technology is going to allow us to get care into areas across the globe where you couldn't like it. it I'm not going to be able to get the top neurosurgeon to go practice in the Sedan right now, but. I can get his talents there using the, the technology and I can get his skill sets there helping other people do it to help other people treat. And it's actually one of the things that we are doing right now. We're looking at expanding our medical school into Pakistan, into Africa, into uh, Turkey and Istanbul. And the advantage is this, by the way we deliver the curriculum and using these technologies, I don't need to get the physiologist into those locations every time. I can beam them from our St. Louis campus, our Puerto Rican campus there. She can teach the class there. We have a moderator there helping them understand the clinical cases of patients they're likely to see there. And I can hire at that wage level. So I'm hiring talent at that wage level, which is going to be less than what is in the United States while being able to provide the expertise into the barriers. And so I think you're going to see a lot more globalization of the healthcare world. And I'm, this is my little spiel. This is a little egocentric on me, but there's been three periods of health education. There's been the Hippocrates era, where if you wanted to study medicine, you went to some Greek island and studied it. That sounds, that sounds appealing, by the way. And then a guy comes around named Galen, who about a thousand years later was the doctor to the Caesars and the gladiators, and he wrote a lot. And medicine was done. So from about zero BCE to about 1600, Medicine was a done science. Everyone thought Galen had done it. You don't need to do it. You want your kid to go study law or rhetoric or religion or something. Guy comes around in the 1600s with the printing press named Versalius yeah. and realized Galen was wrong. All that stuff was wrong. And so what he does is he stood in front of a lecture hall. He would lecture about what Galen was wrong and was right. And he, and he would give this lecture. And if you wanted to study medicine, you went into these lecture halls and listen. That's how we teach medicine right now. Yeah. That's what we do at this, the person 
or the group that standardizes medical education so you can deliver it across the globe in a common, high-quality, gold-standard way with analytics is the person they're going to write about the next thousand years. Interesting. And, and so that's what excites me. And I know it's a little egocentrical. Hey. But I, I think that if we can do that, one, it's going to help the U.S. It's going to help the globe. And it helps show that the great thing about medical education versus the other disciplines, law, accounting, they're different from region to region. But your heart has four chambers, regardless of where you live in the planet. Yeah. And so medicine really identifies itself as a means with which we can do this. And it's really exciting. Yeah. That's fascinating stuff. We're about to conclude here. The one just follow-up question there, when you were talking about artificial intelligence, it, to me, it connected back to the decision-making piece, where one thing that I think a lot about and emerges across categories, and I'd be curious your take, thinking about it from medicine and medical education, is that we are entering these crisis points around human decision-making capability relative to algorithms and artificial intelligence and technology that is external to a practitioner, a decision maker, that's increasingly becoming a problem for a challenge really for healthcare and for medical professionals. Any perspective on that? I'd, I'd love to hear a little bit from you on that. Yeah. So I, I think the question really is, do we let AI take over our clinical care? And do we trust that? I don't see maybe in five or 10 generations from now, that's possible. But honestly, I don't see that occurring. One, you always want that clinical experience of what the physician has likely seen, because they're going to be like, we just talked about that cultural competency in healthcare, understanding the life experiences. That doctor is going to understand what that patient's been through, what their diet most likely is. And that might not be in a chart record that the AI is looking at. What has happened before what psychology gets involved with it. That's stuff that isn't really tangible on our medical records right now. So it would lead an artificial intelligence result astray. And so that's why you're always, at this moment in time, going to require the, the human touch, somebody to take all that data, interpret it, and make a clinical decision. So I, I don't see that going away yet. And also as a parent, I don't want to put my kid in front of a camera and scan them and then have some computer tell me what to do. Mm. I want a doctor to look at the individual and, and say, what's going on? Because I don't think that element of trust, like we trust uh, Elon on the self-driving car. So, so we all trust, some of us trust the Tesla to drive us down the road. Right. Some of us don't. I don't see that level of trust occurring in the healthcare field, at least for another hundred years. In my opinion, it might get there. But I, I, even then, I think you're still going to want somebody that's got that clinical experience that understands the life experiences of the patient to help be able to interpret what all that information is. I'm not saying that we don't use it. The doctor needs to use all that information, make a decision on what we're going to do with the patient, but it's still going to be the doctor that makes that decision. Yeah. It's interesting. I have analogized to chess and the idea that like a centaur, when you combine a human with AI frequently can outperform a pure AI. What I do see it helping is actually assisted technology. I'll give an example. You're cutting in the brain. It's very tough to keep your hand straight to do a very straight longitudinal cut. What you can do is you can have a computer assistant where the computer can create the boundaries of that cut yeah. and you move it down. So you don't accidentally cut tissue outside of what you want to do. It keeps you in the line. So 
the assistance mm. of the AI to help the physician do the procedure, make the diagnosis is really going to help enhance our healthcare delivery system in the next five years. I mean, this is something that's happening right now, mm-hmm. but do I think the AI takes over? No. No, it's great stuff. We're getting close to conclusion here, David. We clearly could continue open invite back with your third appearance, qualify for a trending in education refrigerator magnet. <laughs> but, but as we're wrapping up, first off, thank you to you and the folks who are delivering the, both delivering the healthcare, but then also delivering the education and providing the supports that are needed. We didn't even get into questions of burnout and the stress that a lot of our healthcare. And they do have it. Yeah, it's real. And outside of, we all have it independent of being in healthcare professions. And then you think about the, the crucible of that experience. Any concluding thoughts as we're wrapping up our conversation here today? If folks are interested in learning more about you and what, what you have going on, where, where should they go? Yeah, so they can go to tiberhealth.com to see us or phsu.edu or psm.edu. So to see our schools and things like that. The advice I would if there's students out there listening to me and you want to be a doctor, you want to work in the healthcare field, don't always listen to your admissions advisor. One of the things I get most frustrated with is I talk to a student, they go, I got some bad grades freshman year C. And so I was told I never could be a doctor. Don't listen to that nonsense. Because a lot of times those people don't know what we're looking at. And if you truly want to help people, even if you don't become an MD, you go into somewhere in the healthcare field, these are good, high pay, high satisfaction jobs because you're making a difference to people's lives and their career, their, their family changing. You got a job for life. And that's one of the exciting things. People are always going to have a need for a healthcare worker. So you're not going to be kind of cast out of a job. And it's just, I, I see the disappointment for people that want to become healthcare workers and they're told they can't do that. Before you close the chapter in that book, rethink it, call somebody like me and make sure that's exactly what you should do. And it, I can't think of a more rewarding job than helping people on this planet. Fantastic stuff from Dr. David Lenahan, the CEO and president of Tiber Health. Thanks so much for joining us on today's show. Thanks, Mike. Really enjoyed it. I love these things. Great job. Awesome. And hopefully our listeners uh, enjoyed it as well. If you did, write us a review, share the good word. We'll be back again soon. This is Trending in Education.